Welcome back to the On the Blue Couch podcast with Kathleen Brennan. This podcast is about any and all things related to therapy. Hi, all. Before we begin the episode today, I wanted to share with you an upcoming event, the Stimulant Summit. The past few episodes have been on addiction during a pandemic, and this online event may deepen your understanding on substance abuse and addiction. Stimulant-related overdoses are increasing, and the Cocaine, Meth, and Stimulant Summit is the only educational event focused on addressing this crisis. Now in its third year, the Stimulant Summit will be held as a virtual experience November 20th through the 22nd of this year, 2020. So I have an exclusive offer for On the Blue Couch listeners to take $50 off their conference registration using code OTBC50 as O on T the B blue C couch 50. Attend 28 sessions live and watch anything you missed on demand for 90 days. You can go to stimulantsummit.com for a list of presenters and sessions and to register. Thanks. For people who are listening, Arthur and I are doing part three of a series of episodes on substance use and addiction specifically around the time of COVID, because it is different. We're in self-isolation. There's quarantining going on. So we had started by talking about intervention during the time of COVID, moved into the second episode, the second part being around relapse prevention uh, during the time of COVID. And now we're moving into really talking about what long-term recovery looks like. Um, And so that's where we're going to really focus our conversation on today. So why don't we just start with my first question, Arthur, around how you think about long-term recovery, how you describe it to people. The term long-term recovery is pretty broad. Um, You know, some people may consider long-term recovery a year. Some people may consider long-term recovery five years, some may recover, you know, or or consider it 10 plus years, you know, it really uh, boils down to the person. When I, when I first got sober, I heard somebody say that they had two weeks sober. And in my world, that was long-term recovery, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, um, you know, I, I can say that being sober nearly 30 years, I would consider that long term what is long-term, you know, it's like long-term recovery, whether it's two weeks, a year, five years, 10 years, 30 years. um, I think it means that I've gone through some really uncomfortable things and I didn't have to go to those really dark places. You know, I mean, I may have gone to some dark places, but not where I was medicating, intoxicating, engaged in my addiction. Well, I'm imagining from what you're saying, if you, you know, at the time, right, I know you've talked about feeling raw and actually the first year of novelty and it actually being this kind of different world um, and the post-acute withdrawal that kind of comes after that, right? That Mm -hmm. came up unexpectedly. I guess my question is, knowing that two weeks seemed like a really long time, what kept you one foot in the front of the other going down a path that you didn't know how long it was going to be? Yeah, well, eventually when I got, you know, when I got to treatment, um, what kept one foot going in front of the other was that I was actually experiencing the the benefit of being sober and I was 
fortunately, I was in a 90-day treatment program, not a 10-day or a 30-day. I was in a 90-day program, so I was a lot, I was able to get through the uncomfortable, the really uncomfortable parts that I would have never gotten past um, not being in that treatment center. So, you know, realizing that I could get through those things and not pick up a drink or a drug, and I was actually um, getting some benefit out of that. I was mm-hmm. ha- get becoming happy with my life. I was starting to realize that I had some level of self-value and self-love. Um, and, um, and I began to d- develop a sense of purpose too. And, you know, so, you know, that as that progressed, um, you know, I, I think I was just more and more motivated to keep moving forward because I wanted more of that. Mm-hmm. That actually became more powerful than the drink or the drugs that I was putting in my body. Um, you know, I, I just felt an overwhelming sense of gratitude as I was moving through what was uncomfortable and doing things that I didn't want to do, but I was doing them anyway. And realizing that I was, you know, things were actually working out in a good way for me. I just, I just kept getting filled up, right? My, my spirit was filling up. I was feeling gratitude. I was um, feeling like I wanted to give something back. I was feeling like, uh, you know, oh, I do have something to give back. Oh, maybe I can help somebody else who's going through what I've been through. And, um, you know, and it, and it wasn't like, oh, I've got to do that so I can stay sober. It's like, no, I actually found joy in helping somebody else because it, it really felt good, you know? So I started to, you know, and I, and I had guidance. I had people teaching me the value of that and guiding me to, to, to risk that, to risk, you know, putting myself out there that way. I mean, when I was in that treatment center, they had us out talking to dare programs at high schools in 1990 still in the 90 day treatment program telling these kids my my life story my 17 years of life uh and so i you know i think where i went i mean it was a state funded program a lot of the for profit programs will you know people in you know their uh admissions or whatnot may speak poorly about a state funded program because they want you to go to their for profit program right mm-hmm. that's not all of them but it, you know i've i've heard that conversation had and this was a state funded program and they were doing it right so you said 30 days versus 90 days what do you recommend today what's available today Oh, I, well, I generally, you know, every, everything's case by case, but, you know, we usually see uh, the greatest outcomes with 90 days or more uh, of residential treatment. You know, sometimes we need to get creative. We, you know, if, if, you know, we're, we're finance is an issue, if we're relying on insurance and insurance is refusing to cover you know, we can kind of do a wraparound service and combine with supportive living and outpatient and things like that. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I mean, traditionally, you know, the 
90 days is, is a, there's something about that. It's interesting. Like you had the 90 day program and then you get out and you have a sponsor telling you, Oh, I recommend you go to 90 meetings in 90 days. Like I just did 90 days. I'll do another 90 days. (laughs) You know, know, um, but I think there's something really significant about that where we, you know, actually see some real change happen um, within that time. It's not, happening in that third that first 30 days out of experience personal experience and professional like there there's rapport building in that in that mm-hmm. time but any real work is not being done in 30 days mm-hmm. because we're talking about more of the long term recovery then um so people step outside of treatment and then some people might say 90 meetings in 90 days how do you think about other support or within the challenges that people face that you think that they need either in the beginning or as time moves on to think about implementing into their lives? You know, if somebody's gone through residential treatment that they attend intensive outpatient or outpatient treatment, following that, uh, some do, some don't. I personally, they recommended it. I, you know, I didn't have money. My family didn't have money. It was a long way to drive from where I was living to where they're recommending that I go to outpatient treatment. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I, I, I actually didn't, I wound up just committing to going to a meeting every day. Mm -hmm. And um, I remember there was a lot of pushback from it, but you know, it it worked out and I was actually going back to the treatment center a year later or so telling my story to the clients there. You know, what I've, what I've found personally is that, um, moving into getting into years of recovery, you know, and it it started around after my first year, I wound up going to see a counselor because a lot more was coming up and I was dealing with depression and severe anxiety and panic attacks Mm -hmm. and things like that. And, and I, I don't, I mean, I don't think I went to the right counselor. I don't think she fully understood what I was actually dealing with, you know, and then another point I think I had about, you know, I was somewhere around seven to eight years sober. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I wound up getting a sponsor who was a Jesuit priest who was also a psychotherapist. Mm-hmm. So I, I started making a beginning there with talking about, you know, mother issues and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I like that really um, opened me up to, to more therapy Mm-hmm. Um, there was a period, there was a really dark period between that time where I was seven, eight years sober and I met that guy and, uh, you know, that, that first couple of years sober, there was a period in there where I, I didn't go to any meetings. I stayed isolated. Mm-hmm. I, I did my work and, um, and I, and I really, uh, buried myself in music. I would just record music for hours upon hours straight. But I went into a really kind of just isolated, dark place. And then, you know, when I met that psychotherapist slash priest slash sponsor, uh, yeah, he started pointing some things out that I really hadn't um, looked at that closely. And that kind of started, um, I don't know, just opened the, the avenue for therapy. And I I mean, I've um, sort of been in and out of therapy ever since then. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, different, different periods, you know, different things come up and, 
you know, part of recovery is when things come up for you and you're not medicating, you can't help but see and feel them. Right. Mm -hmm. And if, if I can see and I can feel it and I know that I've got that to work through, if I don't work through that, it's going to come around to bite me, (laughs) you know? Mm -hmm. So I usually wait till the very last minute when um, I'm feeling the most pain under whatever it is I'm dealing with. And then I'll make a call and say, uh, when can you see me? I need some help, mm-hmm. you know, but you do reach out for help. Yeah. That's the key really, mm-hmm. you know, asking for help and then accepting the help that's being offered, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, I think it was probably twenty. 14, 2015, I knew there was some things I needed to deal with. I'd been researching EMDR and talking about it for a long time. And mm-hmm. then I finally picked up the phone. Literally the first call that I made, I started crying mm-hmm. internally as I heard myself leaving the message asking for help. Um, I was probably due for the, that series of sessions 15 years before I got there. She's like, I can't believe that you, um, you went this long without doing this. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Do you want to talk a little bit about what your experience was of doing EMDR, what it was about it, what made you decide to seek that route? I, I like that EMDR. I choose like there's a specific, some specific experiences that I have that I want to reprocess. And what, what I actually went in there with was there were probably three or four experiences that we went through in a series of five sessions. What she did that was amazing, her name was Valerie. We, we started with, with one, processed through it, and um, literally it was like a, the floodgates opened when, I, when it came up. And as she guided me through and was, was asking me questions about the experience, suddenly new things were popping into my head that were really positive. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, the whole experience was completely reframed. Yeah. I I mean, my experience has been that when something would normally trigger a certain picture in my head that would make me refeel that it triggers a different one that makes Mm -hmm. me feel better things. And what she did is she tied these three or four experiences together uh, having such a powerful experience with this particular therapist, I don't know if I would go to anybody else. I mean, yeah. what you just described. So EMDR is protocoled. It, it sounds very positive and it sounds like you um, found someone who was really skilled and it's interactive. I think one thing about EMDR that people think is that you just say go with that and then you just reprocess it. But it is really much more than that. And I think you're talking about the interactive process of it as well. You know, I think most important that I trusted this lady. The, the trust is a huge, huge piece, especially when you're coming in with heavy, heavy stuff like that. Yeah. It's, and the other thing about it is that you're kind of describing the network of memories. There can be another memory linked to the core memory that you started with. And then there might be another negative cognition connected to that, that the client gets to decide if they want to resolve. Right. So that's part of the planning that kind of goes into it. It's a really powerful process. Um, I've gone through it too. Therapists who are trained in it are 
encouraged to go through it themselves. And I think what you're describing, I've had a similar, um, really positive response where certain reactions just are not there anymore. Yeah. You know, the way you might have reacted to something ongoing and you're like, you know what, I'm sick of responding this way. But it's also linked to a fight or flight response rather than a, I just can't will this response away. Yeah, I mean, and, and the timing of it was actually really, uh, for me, was really um, it's interesting. It was right around the same time that one of the perpetrators, we'll call them, that I was doing the EMDR around somebody who literally, you know, was repeatedly almost beat me to death um, mm-hmm. as a child, um, died of cirrhosis. And there was a family member that um, that actually shamed me for this person dying. Like, you know, um, shame on you for not, uh, they, they decided that I didn't create peace with them. And they shamed me for this person who was the monster in the house uh, okay. for, di- you know, the timing, timing is interesting with recovery. It's like, as that was going on simultaneously, I was actually going and getting help and reprocessing the damage that was caused. And by doing that, um, reprocessing the damage that was trying to be caused with the shame attack <laughs> right, right. <laughs> for this person dying that I hadn't talked to in years, you know? Right. Yeah. So, and so people yeah. are sometimes even left with feeling that in isolation. Um, right. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I bring that up that, I mean, these are some of the things that people in longer term recovery deal with and, and are faced with. And you'll hear some people in the 12 step world will, you know, smugly say, you know, uh, you know, I know all kinds of people with 20, 30 years sober that went and drank again. It's like, well, yeah, it's a really sad thing. These are the things that probably came up for them. And they'd been taught for so many years that all of their answers were in one little book. And the reality is they weren't. And, um, and a lot of times the ego can really um, get in the way of, you know, reaching out for, for help. I, we were talking earlier about, you know, sometimes within the 12-step world, they'll say, well, oh, yeah, you need some outside help. It's like, no, I don't need outside help. I need a deeper level of inside help. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I'm definitely going <laughs> to, I'm not going to look for it here. <laughs> right. You know, this is a great foundation for me and what I've built in my life. But um, I need to be open to, to you know, to, to what's there. And I need to progress. You know, I was taught, I told somebody earlier on today, I think somebody came over for lunch to our office and, talked about one of my earliest mentors saying, um, guys like you and me, we don't, um, we don't tread water very well. You know, we're either going forward or we're going backward, you know, at some level, you know, we're not just hovering here in the middle, especially when you're in recovery from addiction or the effects of family dysfunction or codependency or whatever that is like i'm either going forward or i'm going backward there's no hovering you know maybe some people do i i just don't i don't (laughs) you know well and i think i i think i know what you're saying i i also think that 
and maybe it's just like semantics, but if you've learned something, you can't unlearn it. Like if you've gone through something, you know, some people say, oh, I've, I've, I've backslid. Like I just, and now I've undone all the work that I've done. And it's like, well, no, cause your muscle now mm. has some memory around that and now knows how to bring in secondary muscles to surround it and help it. And yeah, I hear what you're saying. So yeah, you can backslide and then find your way, you know, back forward. It's not like backsliding erases all the work that you've done. No, I'm not, not saying that, but what I'm saying is, you know, if I'm not progressing forward at some level, mm-hmm. there, there's at some level I'm, I'm moving backwards, you know, I, I, or, or I'm doing something to disassociate. I'm staring at Facebook and, and living, you know, the, through the lens and the window of whatever everybody else's opinion about is what, uh, about what's going on in the world is. That's backwards. I'm moving mm-hmm. backwards. I'm, there's no hovering going on there. So does right. that, is that? It make- totally does. And I think you're also clarifying that sitting still, like you don't have to be in constant motion to be moving forward. Is right. that actually right. sitting still can require a lot of people. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a whole lot. You know, I even think about standing in line for something and that we still reach for our phones. There's this impulse to reach, to check and what it means to just even stand in a line and be still, um, and be with ourselves, like how much that's changed over the decades when I grew up with a rotary phone with one line yeah, and an answering too. machine. <laughs> so, um, I remember, I mean, before we had an answering machine, we didn't have one. <laughs> <laughs> and still we were able to get in touch with people who knew. That was like a leap forward, you know, wow, <laughs> you can have your voice on a tape and they'll hear it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but yeah, they'll, they'll look at it, the phone in public. I mean, usually you get on an elevator and the person immediately pulls their phone out and looks at it. You know, they're not looking at anything. They just don't want to talk to you. They don't want to interact, you know. Well, but, but, but there's also this, this kind of weird compulsion to check, even though there's nothing really being checked. It's kind of like this numbing out checking. Yeah, it's, well, it's a nervous thing. Too. Yeah. It's like I, I have to feel, you know. Have to be my brain needs to be occupied with something because I'm uncomfortably being on this elevator with a stranger right now. <laughs> you know, we all know that you're not getting any service on this elevator. You're not. You're not even. You're not even logging on to anything. <laughs> yeah, so. um, there are lots of options out there for people. So EMDR is one. Um, somatic experiencing is another. For some people, craniosacral uh, is a good fit. Are you aware of any other ones or ones that you've thought about? Those are the ones that I hear about the most. I mean, I know people that are, you know, that specialize in those. I haven't actually gone and engaged in those modalities personally. I've seen um, clients do very well with with that. I think um, tapping into that, you know, those can really contribute to addressing the underlying issues that people are dealing with. Um, mm-hmm. and, and that's really, you know, when you're, when you're getting into quote long-term recovery, that's what's coming up. Whatever underlying issues were there that motivated things to get to where they were in the first place, 
you know, mm-hmm. the, the whole concept of the layers of the onion. I mean, that's, it's yeah. like, I don't want another layer. I don't want any more therapy. Stop, please. Uh, just stop it. And, uh, and it doesn't, it doesn't stop. Um, as soon as I know it's going to be there until I address it. <laughs> you know? Well, the other thing I want to name is you've been doing yoga for years and you know, we have today trauma informed yoga and I think that yoga gets at the body stuff. Um, well, yeah, it teaches back, us we can get through stuff in a moment. Back when you and I first met, what, uh, 10 years ago or so, um, I was actually going through some real like PTSD recall stuff at 20 years sober um, that I didn't understand that I needed help with. And... Um, yeah, one of the one of the things I was literally driving down. Uh, what street was I on? I was probably on Broadway. Yeah, yeah I was on Broadway, somewhere over there, uh, Lincoln Park, somewhere. And I I just saw a sign that said hot yoga, and I was like, hot yoga, um, heat good, heat good. Uh, haven't stretched in a long time heat will be good. Okay. I'm going to try it. And so I started asking around like, Hey, have you done any of this hot yoga? And, and this girl, Kristen uh, brought me to my first hot yoga class in like river North. They had like hardwood floors and, uh, and it was like uh, absolute hell, um, absolute hell. But I, and I, I mean, it was, I can't, but I couldn't believe that I went through that. And, um, but I felt so good afterward. I was like, Oh my God, I feel like the, what I'm feeling in my body, this, this trauma that I'm feeling in my body that was so uncomfortable. It feels like it's releasing, Mm -hmm. you know, I I think a combination of that and um, the right support group that I started attending to real, that was focused on, you know, the family dysfunction, ACA, adult children of alcoholics and dysfunctional families. Mm -hmm. That was the next level of emotional sobriety for me Mm -hmm. combined with that hot yoga. It all just kind of worked really well together. Mm -hmm. And, um, uh, now I'm, I'm doing, um, I'm doing another, you know, it's more meditation focused, but uh, there's this little 15, it's literally on an app. It's a 15 minute energization exercise where I'm just flexing and releasing isolated muscles through my body. Mm. Um, and, and it's a, it's a specific series and it literally just, uh, takes 15 minutes and I literally changed my whole being in 15 minutes, just flexing and releasing muscles. I mean, that's all I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And, then I, and then I sit down and I'm quiet and I have a meditation and I watch my breath go in and out. And my whole day is back on course. <laughs> when well, you're I, calming when I, your when, nervous system, yeah. Well, yeah, it, yeah, I think it's that it's doing that, but it's also energy. I'm actually yeah. building energy. I'm drawing energy into my into my body, mm-hmm. and and uh, around the trauma thing, I think that that practice, like as I'm as I was listening to you talk, you know, that's that particular practice is, you know just systematically um, moving things that reside in my muscles, mm-hmm. you know, 
physiologically. Well, it, it is in our tissues is what you're describing. Yeah. And it, it, it hits. Yeah. I mean, it's so powerful that, that you, we actually have the ability to heal ourselves with a lot of, with a lot of good guidance, you know? I mean, that's what therapy is, right? Like, you know, guidance to heal ourselves, you know? Two things. There's two things that are kind of coming up for me. One is, have you seen the documentary Cracked Up about Daryl Hammond from SNL? No, but um, well before that came out, I went to a conference, actually my very first conference I ever went to um, in uh, San Diego at, at Hotel Del Coronado. And, uh, he was, he, he was like a guest, uh, speaker and, um, he told his story. I I remember he was like an SNL guy and I was expecting like a comedy stick and he told his story and I was like, is is this like real or is this, oh, that's his story. Oh, wow. I mean, this was like 2013, April, 2013. Okay. So it's, I saw that come up and I was like, oh, interesting. They came around to making a. Yeah, film. <laughs> yeah, if you get a chance, I mean, you saw his story. It's a really powerful one. And to hear his healing journey is pretty incredible. And one thing they said is the issues are in the tissues. Yeah. So I forget if it was a psychiatrist or if he actually said it during the documentary, but it's really what we're talking about right now. Mm. Um, the other thing that you mentioned is that 20 years into sobriety, that you started having some PTSD symptoms. And I appreciate you sharing that. Um, because I feel like there's this, for some, it can be totally startling to mm. have stuff arise later on in life. Like there's this expectation that maybe it starts in the beginning of recovery or in the beginning of therapy and then you're done and that there's never going to be a PTSD flare up or there's no more material that comes up and so was it surprising to you? Were you shocked by it? Oh, no, it was really familiar. I okay. actually had exactly what came up. Um, maybe not exactly. I mean, I had a lot of life in between when it resurfaced, but around four years sober, the right combination of things happened in my life that triggered that to open up. And it almost, it literally almost killed me at 21 years old uh, with four years sober. And, um, and it, through what happened back then, it actually, everything went back into the vault, everything closed back up. There was another trauma on top of it. Um, when that happened, it was like 1994. Um, and yeah, so then, uh, well, 16 years after that, um, 16 years later, the right combination of things triggered that to open and open back up. Uh, and it was very familiar. And I thought, you know, uh, okay, I need to prepare. If this um, progresses anymore, I know what happened back then. I don't want this to happen again. So um, I actually planned on how to, how to ask for help and how to address it. Mm-hmm. Not fully understanding it. Just like, how do I address it? I, I pick up the phone and say, I don't understand this. I'm okay with that. Yeah. You know, I'm okay. And, and the sad thing is a, a lot of people with 20 years sober, especially, um, you know, within the recovery world, within the 12 step world, 
sometimes um, there are a lot of people that put a lot of stock into what that person says and what that person does. And there's almost like an image that they have to live up to or fulfill. And, um, and a lot of times they won't find that place of humility to say, I don't understand this. The answers are not in this book that I've been referring to. Um, you know, and, and unfortunately they, they wind up drinking or, you know, or they wind up killing themselves. Well, I think it's especially important what you're saying in that there can continue to be unknowns and giving ourselves, giving people permission to say, I have no idea, or I kind of know. Um, and I'll know that I can ask for help and I may not figure this out right away. It may take some time. Mm-hmm. Um, but we never have it fully figured out. It's just no, not the case. I don't want to. I don't want to. <laughs> right. I don't want to have it all figured out. It's just boring, you know. Like it's very I mean, boring, Arthur. Yeah, you know. Um, I mean, I was taught growing up that you have to act like you have it all figured out. Mm. Otherwise, this world's going to eat you alive. You don't trust anybody. Um, you definitely don't show them how you're actually feeling. You know, the, one of the greatest gifts that I've been given is the ability to admit, I don't know. Mm-hmm. You know, I was actually, t- that was one of the lessons I was taught when I got sober was, hey, we don't make stuff up here. If you don't have experience with that, mm-hmm. you don't share your opinion about that. You only share facts out of your experience because people are here, they're looking to you, you know, people are dealing with some some real issues that could kill them right um so uh and this is just being a person in recovery in the the 12-step world like you know no we we um we look for somebody who had who we know who has an experience that they can relate to and we connect that person with them Mm -hmm. just like we would in behavioral health (laughs) if it's out of my scope to yes. help you with what you're dealing with, yeah, I need to to be honest and do what's right for you first, and refer you to who's actually going to help you. Exactly, it's the right thing to do. I mean, yeah. I don't know anybody who wants to. I don't know why anybody would want to work outside their scope. I would imagine that would be a really scary thing, and I know it. It does happen, um, but in the world of therapy, it's the ethical thing to do. And I think in life, it's the right thing to do. Yeah. Right. Uh, Unfortunately, the truth is there are a lot of people that are claiming to do things that they have no (laughs) experience. Mm. I mean, it, it gets, it, it, it can get out there. People are desperate and they will, um, they will claim to do things that they have no experience with to get a paycheck. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. So, um, so also being aware of that, that, that when, when seeking help or what are people's credentials, there are places and ways to figure that out. So people can be informed on what a credentialed person looks like. Right. Yeah. 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 That, and, and, you know, uh, it referring back to the recovery world as well. Like you hear people say they don't do anything unless their sponsor says, unless their sponsor tells them. I take everything to my sponsor. My sponsor has told me everything that I needed to know. Like, 
uh, I'm sorry. I, I don't mm-hmm. trust anybody that much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, the sponsor that I had said, I'll make some suggestions. And if you don't take any of them, then I'm probably not going to be much use to you. I was mm-hmm. like, okay, that sounds safe. That feels safe. Yes. Um, somebody, somebody deciding that they know what's best for me. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm running the other way. Like, mm-hmm. um, that, that gets, that gets weird. You it know? gets weird. And I think we need to say, and people should run the other way actually. Yeah. And, yeah. and I mean, even in, and then you go back to the uh, behavioral health and therapy world, like, no, we don't give advice. <laughs> we don't give advice. You know, we listen, we reflect, Mm-hmm. We uh, offer suggestion, perspective, lay out some possible paths. Um, we don't guarantee anything, yeah. right? Except I can guarantee you the way that I'm going to be with you when we're working together. Mm-hmm. That's what I can guarantee. Who's, I can guarantee you who's showing up on my end mm-hmm. and what I show up with. And that's right. it. I can't well, guarantee your results. Well, what I think you're talking about is what gets established established first, which is safety, right? Which is what can we both expect in either this therapeutic relationship, in this working relationship, in this sponsor-sponsee relationship? How do we respond when we're in the room? How do we respond when we're outside the room? I'm reading this book on um, actual cults. <laughs> and kind of like people... Like, what are the vulnerabilities, you know, to people entering cults and what do the gurus quote unquote look like and what's kind of the pathology there. And, you know, actually we're all vulnerable to it is really what the book is saying. Like there's no, like if you had trauma or no trauma that the, the, I know it all is the, is the with mixed with some charisma and mixed with some other things and a power and control dynamic um, is part of the dynamic that you're describing when people say, I know it all and you have to take what I say or else, mm-hmm. or else I'm going to leave you or else this relationship is over or else um, there's going to be some sort of emotional punishment. I don't know. I, that's what kind of comes up for me. I get kind of the eh feel when you, when you say that. Yeah. I mean, I do too. It's like, um, that uh, a lot of the a lot of the meetings that I may poke my head in or, or walk into, um, they're not they're not the ones that I walked into in 1990. Very different. Um, you know, there there's a these, these groups and these meetings are autonomous, right? That's within their traditions that they're autonomous, Mm -hmm. but some of them take that to a real, a real extreme. And I mean, that's a whole other podcast. Like, you know, like the, the, you know, the, some of the earliest, uh, I don't know if they were the, some people have referred to them as the original residential treatment model. I don't know how accurate that statement is, but you, I'm sure you've heard of Synanon. No, actually, I haven't. So Synanon, I think they started back in the 50s or 60s. They were in um, Santa Monica. It was like long-term residential treatment. That's where therapeutic community, that model came from, the each one, teach one. 
Um, a lot of people were helped through that. I actually uh, was trained by some of their, one of their original members when I worked at that prison came and she actually wrote the curriculums for uh, the program in the prison. And, um, and then I had a, uh, another friend who passed not long ago was, um, you know, one of their early members, but they, they, yeah, there was that guy, Chuck, Chuck Dietrich was their leader and things got weird. And, uh, years later, suddenly people were shaving their heads, walking around armed, dropping snakes in, uh, lawyers, mailboxes, uh, got really, really weird and just kind of blew up into, you know, that, that went into full fledged cult. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, that, no, you're totally right. This is a whole other podcast. I'm actually kind of yeah. interested in it. Like, how does that evolve? Oh, look it right? up. Synanon, Chuck Dietrich. I mean, it's a whole, wow, man. <laughs> okay. You know, and, 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 but there are, these people are still, uh, this stuff is still going on, like in micro ways here and there. Um, there, there are 12 step groups within you know, within the big picture that have certain leaders that they follow that nobody gets up in front of the room without saying that person's name. Um, I mean, it, it really, uh, you know, it's weird in California. They have, you know, one, you know, they, everyone jokes, Oh, everyone goes on Sundays to clean, you know, the dog crap out of his backyard. You know, (laughs) it's just a, it's a, it's a bizarre um, thing. When, When I got, when I got into quote, recovery, you know, I made a decision early on that I was not going to speak that way. I was not going to speak 12-step lingo. Mm-hmm. I was just going to talk like I always talked. Mm-hmm. Because who, who's it going to help? It's not going to help anybody for me to quote some piece of literature that this person could care less about. You know, they're only going to watch what I'm doing and well, doing what I'm saying. That's it. You know, I wonder about when the literature actually was written and came out. A lot of literature is a sign of the times and what was going on culturally, Mm -hmm. politically. There's those layers mixed in there. So times have changed. We are in 2020. And yeah, I mean, on that front, you know, I I think, yeah, there's there's some really old literature. There's a lot of pieces within that letter literature that is still as relevant today as it was back then. But then there's other other pieces in there that, yeah, the, the you know family dynamics were much different back then than they are now. Mm-hmm. You know, um, mm-hmm. you know it's not so focused around the whole husband wife dynamic all the time. You know, mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. So, any other things that we should talk about today as far as long term recovery that we haven't so far? You think Just, it'll be important. You know, I, I think, you know, it's, it's important that, you know, somebody who's, who's in long-term recovery that wants to continue progressing in their life, it's important that I fill my spirit with good things. It's important that I, you know, I grow my, my idea of, you know, what's really running this, what's driving this, whether you call it God or your higher power or you know, the group that you believe in or whatever that is, you know, that, you know, they, there's a term they say, you know, my, my God has, I need a bigger God, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I need a bigger God because the one I, I, I have just isn't fulfilling what I need fulfilled, you know, 
you know, that, that I stay connected, that I continue to, to give, to give back at some level, you know, that fills my spirit, um, that I'm building my life, that I'm not just sitting in rooms listening, listening to the same old story for a number of years, just, you know, to, to avoid um, doing the work that I knew I needed to do to move forward in my life. I would just, you know, go and disassociate with, you know, all these meetings. It's like, you know, I don't need that many meetings, Mm -hmm. many meetings early on. Yeah. Many meetings when things are tough. Sure. But not for years on end. Part part of long-term recovery, I believe is creating a legacy. What's my legacy? What do I want to be remembered for? What do I want to create before I get out of here? During the current times and what we're dealing with, I've got people who I've known over the years, some I've known for nearly 30 years that have much different belief, a much different belief system about humanity and what certain people's rights are and what they're not. And um, some of those people just don't fit into my life anymore. I have a handful of true friend, friend, friends, right? And then I've got some people that I've met and known over the years, you know, so Mm -hmm. it's important that I I keep that distinction. And just, just because I've known you for that long doesn't mean that I have to stay connected to you, especially when you believe that um, certain people have less rights than, than we do, you know, right. that's another podcast. <laughs> yeah. Well, we have a, se- I mean, we can keep this series going yeah. forever. But, I, but that's recovery, that integrity, like being true to yourself, you know, being, yeah. you know, not tolerating that kind of behavior and, and, um, you know, setting limits with, family that wants to stay sick and and things like that, you know? I think what you're talking about is, you know, going, when we come back to ourselves, we ask the question of who am I and what do I value and what in my life is congruent with that and what is not. And some of the things that aren't are those relationships where you just don't agree. I mean, you can disagree, you can agree to disagree on certain things, but then there's those humanity things that I think... Mm people really have to think more about and yeah. grapple with. Yeah. And, and, and they'll, they'll call it political issues. It's not political issues. These are hu- humanity issues. These are like, you know, if your belief system goes against somebody's right to be here and, and, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, I just um, exist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just can't, you know, I, I, you know, I was, I was hardwired with existence shame on a personal level for me too. I didn't believe I had a right to be here. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, uh, you know, I, I can't imagine having that combined with, I'll just say it with being black, like, you know, to have what I was already hardwired with being a white man, you know, mm-hmm. to have that combined with being black. I, I don't know what, what would have happened in my life, what it would have looked like, what, how, mm-hmm. where I would be, would we be having this conversation Probably not. You know, that, that is recovery for me. I was taught that early on, you know, that, um, that integrity, responsibility, and accountability are, are a huge part of that. 
Well, good to talk today. And you too, Kev. You know, maybe we'll talk again because already there's at least two more podcast episodes that you're going to. Well, no, you're going to be on mine next because uh, uh, mine's going to get rolling, and I'm going to have you on mine. Do you want to <laughs> share your name, the name of it, right now, or are you still? Is that still in the works? Uh, yeah. Well, it's going to be called "Do Speak, Do Trust, Do Feel." When do you think you're going to start interviewing well, and that sort of thing? I'm I'm starting with a the first episode will be solo, and then the second one um, will be I'll have a guest. Maybe you first. <laughs> okay, I'm totally down. I can be yeah. the guinea pig here. Yeah, or be, not. I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure yeah. it'll be an amazing, enlightening uh, interview if you're. We'll we'll make it happen. There. So yeah. Okay. Well, thanks, Arthur, and uh, take good care. Awesome. You too. Thanks, Kathleen. Thank you for joining us today on The Blue Couch. On The Blue Couch is hosted by Kathleen Brennan, a psychotherapist specializing in trauma, anxiety, complex PTSD, and basically any form of loss or other life transitions. You can learn more about Kathleen and her practice at KathleenRBrennan.com. Check out her blog or follow Kathleen R. Brennan on Medium. Music for the podcast is the song Piano Hope by KB. This podcast is edited by Popped Collar Productions, a company specializing in creating innovative solutions through podcasting. Learn more at poppedcollar.net. Please share this show with others and hop onto Apple Podcasts or whatever your podcatcher of choice is and give us a good review. It helps others to find the show. We will be back soon to explore new adventures and new innovations in therapy right here on The Blue Couch. <laughs>